Well, welcome. It's great to have you at Horizon. We're in a series called Word Search, where we are searching for meaning, for truth. What's really true? How do you know if something's true? And we've been looking through four historic biographies called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and asking ourselves, are these historically reliable? And if so, what do they say in our search for meaning and hope? To do that, we've been having some fun together, and we've been actually doing a word search together. So in your notes today is a word search. I'll put up on the screen if you want to follow along. And we're going to try and find some stuff together, because as you're searching through these biographies, or you're searching through philosophy or religion, you're trying to find where's real meaning, where's real truth. How do we find the way that gets us to significance and hope and comfort? So our first word we're going to look for today is way. What is the way that we find meaning and significance? If you see it, just holler out toward the bottom, left, right, middle. Anybody? Bottom. I like drawing in the air. That's helpful. There we go. Way. Okay. There it is. The way. Oh, you're right. I didn't see the ways in. That's good. The way. Another thing that Jesus calls himself, he says, I am the way. It's not an equation. It's not an idea. It's me. I am the way. I'm going to show you who God is through myself. The next thing we search for is not just the way, but the truth. What is true? This is what philosophers call uh, epistemology. How do we know what we know is true? Can you find truth up there in your search for truth? Top, right, left. Okay. okay. Oh, here it is. Truth. There it is. Truth. Truth. A search for truth is what philosophy and religion and life really is all about. But I think we aren't looking for a list of rules. I'm not looking for rules in my life. I'm looking for how to experience the best kind of life. And Jesus says over and over again, I have come that you might have life and the best kind of life. Can you find some life up there? Top? There it is on the left. Very top, top. All right, life. Well, the the book of John we're going to get today is a biography. It's written by a personal friend of Jesus. And he gives out all kinds of nicknames of Jesus. He is the word made flesh. He is eternal. He is the Christ. And he calls these miracles signs. Each one is a sign pointing to Jesus' identity. And he says this phrase over and over again. I am the resurrection. I am the shepherd. I am, last one for us to find, the bread of life. Can you find some bread up there? Where is the bread? While you're looking for it, I did find Christ. And eternal and flesh. Any bread? Bottom right. Going diagonal. There it is. Bread. Bread. See, the claims this historical document makes are earth shattering if it's true. So, first of all, is it true? And if it is true, what does it claim? It claims that the God of the universe, the Logos that made all things, the uncaused cause, came to earth in the form of a human being. And that is a fascinating premise. What if God really became one of us? Maybe you remember that song from the 90s or that cover you've heard. What if God was one of us? What if that premise was true? And what if there were facts to back it up? And if it was true, what would it mean for what reality is like and what meaning and purpose is like and how I find a connection with God and a connection to his plan for my life. I think we've got to begin by asking, but can we even trust these biographies? Can we even trust John's premise that he says God has become one of us? Yeah, 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 sure. If it's true, it's good. If it's true, it's great. But is it really true? 
I mean, after all, how can a historic document be reliable when it claims supernatural things? That would be my first objection, right? Historically reliable books don't reference supernatural things. Those are called fairy tales. That's why we can't trust the Gospels to be historical. Number two, many people say Matthew, Mark, and Luke are three biographies that are written together, or at least in the same time frame. John's written later. Many people would say, scholars say, these three are so similar, we can't trust them. They must have had a common resource that they pulled from. They called it the Q document. We've never seen it. But we imagine there must be one because otherwise they're just too accurate. So we can't trust them because they're too similar. They have a common collaborator. Otherwise, you might say, well, the Bible, sure, it's a religious book. It says it's God's word. Lots of religious books say it's God's word. How do you really know? There's no external evidence to show us that what it says really happened. We're going to look at that together. And we're going to search through all the different letters and words that John has. And sometimes when you're searching for the right words, it helps you find the truth. And we're going to search through the different words John writes. He actually calls Jesus the word. In fact, the idea of word search is because he says Jesus was the very word of God made flesh. And searching for the right words can often lead to meaning and truth. And I don't know about you, but as a kid, I was a pretty good liar. I know you probably never lied because you're a good person. But I did. And my kids did because we, we, we are fallen people. But let me tell you how you know the difference between a liar and somebody who tells the truth. A liar always gives details that aren't detailed. Hey, are you dating anyone? Yeah, I'm dating a girl. Does she go to our school? No, no, no. She goes to that school across town. Oh, I know lots of people there. Oh, you wouldn't know her. She lives in Tremont, right? It's generic enough that you can't check it out. There are details that aren't detailed. A liar gives facts that can't be fact-checked. And they typically hide the bad parts that they did that are true with good parts that they make up that aren't true. That's kind of how you discern a liar. And when you look at the, the, these biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they do the opposite. They give you lots of details, lots of facts you can fact check. They don't hide the bad parts. They show you that, in general, the, the disciples are a bunch of narrow-minded, big-headed, arrogant blowhards some of the time. And yet God worked with them. John says, what we're writing here is not religion. What we're writing here is not philosophy. It's history. These are things we've heard. These are things we've seen. We looked at this. We handled this. Luke shows up and says, we were eyewitnesses to this stuff. I investigated the personal witnesses of this stuff that you might know the truth. Peter writes and says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales or fables. We were eyewitnesses. We are telling you not what we believe, we're telling you what we saw. Whew. So let the Bible stand on its own claims. It gives you facts that can be fact checks, and it gives you facts that can be checked out. So let's check out the facts. Let's start with that first one. What are some of the facts that we can fact check? Well, let's look at those three objections I gave each. Each week in the series, I've tried to give you different objections about the Bible and tried to give a counter-argument. So the first argument is we can't trust the Bible, and John in particular, because it records supernatural events. So let's first take that at a 30,000-foot level. The Bible claims that a supernatural God came to earth. Would it be rational that a supernatural God could do supernatural things? 
And if what it claims is true, shouldn't a supernatural God be doing supernatural things? Wouldn't it be incredibly lame to say, the all-powerful God of the universe came to our planet and he couldn't do much at all? I mean, that would, like, who wants to follow that God? So it's actually logically consistent to say the supernatural God would do supernatural things, so I wouldn't kick that out. Secondly, historians accept all kinds of books as historically reliable that record supernatural things. Let's take the Caesars, for example. Caesar wrote Gaelic Wars and also a book called The Twelve Caesars. Historians, of course, call this historically reliable. A little propaganda because they make themselves look better than they should, but they say these are historically accurate. And they are filled with supernatural. Signs from the heavens that validated that, that the Caesars had come from God. So you can't dismiss the Bible for miracles and supernatural, but not dismiss other books. You've got to be consistent. Then we get to this idea that because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the semnoptic gospels because they're so similar, that we can't trust them because they're too similar. Well, then many years later, John writes an account. So we have a fourth biography. And his biography is two-thirds different from these three. Now, everything he says that they talked about lines up. But he gives us two-thirds more material. And you know what scholars sometimes say? Can't trust these because they're too similar. Can't trust this because it's too different. It's like the Goldilocks test. It's either too hot or too cold. It's never the same. Well, what's the correct amount? Well, Everything recorded by these three biographers is validated by the fourth biographer, and we get all new material. Thirdly, there is not only evidence for what's claimed in this book. There are so many facts and so many details. I could literally spend 10 hours giving you the details that are externally validated. I'll just give you a few. For years, people mocked that all four of these biographers said that Jesus went before trial with Pontius Pilate. There is no record in history of Pontius Pilate. Until 1961. In 1961, they unearthed this piece of rock by a gigantic library that he built for himself. And it says in Latin, To the honorable gods, this Tiberium Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, had dedicated. Exactly the title, exactly the name, just as these four biographers said. There's a Jewish historian writing during that time named Josephus does not believe in Jesus or God, but he records history. And he says, sure enough, about this time there lived a guy named Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. So even he's like, there seems to be more than a man here. For he wrought surprising feats. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And on the third day he appeared restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared to this day. So here's a Jewish historian writing about and confirming the events externally. There's a Roman historian writing, also not a fan of Jesus, but he validates from another angle what happened. A wise man named Jesus, Pilate, condemned him to die. His disciples reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion. And that's just a piece of the evidence that externally validates the claims of these biographies. So I got a mentor, his name's Tim. And Tim was in college and kind of going through that. Eh, my parents had some faith. I don't know if it's my faith. And he's walking along the college campus. And he sees a guy with like one of those big sandwich boards. And on his sandwich board it says, the resurrection of Jesus and Christianity is historically verifiable and existentially satisfying. 
Christianity is historically verifiable and existentially satisfying. Is that can't be true. See, he started a conversation up. And that conversation began him thinking not about his parents' faith or his church's faith or even faith as in a concept or an ethereal belief system, but could it really be historically reliable, verifiable, as well as existentially satisfying? You have hope and meaning because of this message. And as he did that, he began to read the writings of some of the best Christian thinkers through time, like C.S. Lewis, a professor at Oxford who went from atheist to Christianity. As he wrestled, my friend Tim, as well as C.S. Lewis, about this claim that God had become one of us, there's a real challenge C.S. Lewis offers to all of us. He says, when you read these writings, you see something you've got to ponder with. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it. I'm trying to prevent here anyone from saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but not his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A mere man who said the things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic, like a man on the same level as someone who thinks them a poached egg, or else the devil of hell. You've got to make your choice. Either this man was and is God, or else he's a madman, or even something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. I mean, think of it this way. I come here, you haven't met me before, and I say, hey, you know this religious book that's 500 years old that people have been staying their whole life? It's about me. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I was just telling my wife the other day that I'm truly God's gift to her. And she's having trouble believing it. So I tried to show her in the religious book how I fulfill all the wonderful things and I am truly God's gift to her and she ought to treat me accordingly. Would you think I'm a great moral teacher or I lost my mind? And yet Jesus says exactly what I just said and yet he's always humble while doing it. No one's ever seen anything like it before. So if you haven't been in our whole series the last five weeks, I'd go back. Every week I take three objections and I look at three counter-arguments for why these are facts that can be fact-checked. Now, if that's true, then let's see if these facts should be checked out. So what does John say about this man, Jesus, that Josephus and Tacitus and others have seen? What does he say? How does he describe him? What if God was one of us? What, what, what do we need to know about him? Well, let's search for the right words together. Let's look at the first word. What is the first way in which he describes Jesus? Let's, let's kind of zoom back into our, to our video and let's see if you can find what's the first word he uses to describe Jesus. God. His opening line takes a, a word from Greek philosophy, the logos. He says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, the maker of all things, the uncaused cause. And the word was with God, separate, but also the word was God together. How's that possible? And in him was life, and the word took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And the very next line, he shows us that Jesus did things only God could do. Jesus said things that only God could say. And so chapter 1, after putting his big premise out there, I'm about to introduce you to God becoming one of us. He launches into chapter 2 and he shows how this God in front of people that you could still talk to at the time of the writing did things only God could do at a gigantic public gathering at a wedding 
Let's watch. My son. Ah, Andrew, you see, even my own mother will join us in the Song of Miriam. They've run out of wine. But it's only the first day? Yes, and it's all gone. Not a drop left. Why are you telling me this? We can't let the celebration end like this. And Etcher's family humiliated. Boys, uh, go join the others. I'll be right there. Mm. Fill these jars with water all the way to the brim. Why? You heard him. Start drawing water, quickly. Tell anyone you find to stop what they're doing and help. If the smith wants to change the horseshoe or the plowshare or the pot hook, he has only to put the iron back into the fire and reshape it to fit his designs. They're full. Everyone, please step outside. Just for a moment, Thomas. Once you make that first cut into the stone, it can't be undone. It sets in motion a series of choices. What used to be a shapeless block of limestone or granite begins its long journey of transformation. And it will never be the same. Listen, 
I have something I would like to say. I would like to address the bridegroom and the bride families. At every wedding I've ever overseen, they serve the best wine first. And then, when the people have drunk freely, much later in the feast, they serve the poorer wine, the cheap stuff. <laughs> because by then, who is going to notice? <laughs> Am I right? But you, you have chosen now to serve the best wine I have ever tasted. Let us thank them for this unnecessary but honorable gesture. So John opens up telling us that the word became flesh. And then chapter 2, first thing out of the gate, he says the first miracle he did, he calls them signs because they sign post pointing that he's God. And look at the details he gives in the story. On the third day, he gives a date. In the wedding in Cana, this was a gigantic event. Jewish weddings were like seven days long, the entire community. This miracle is done before everybody. Lots of witnesses that were still alive you can go talk to. Look at the details. Cana, Galilee, wedding, go talk to them. And they had tasted the water, and he turned water into wine. Something only God could do. And this was just the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana, in Galilee, that manifested that he was God himself. There's so many things to pick up here. Number one, Jesus went to parties. He hasn't started his ministry yet. He just likes hanging out with people and going to parties. Maybe your view of Jesus, you never thought of Jesus as somebody who likes parties, likes hanging out, people like hanging out with him. He didn't even plan on starting his ministry except we also see here that God cares about the little things. They got a seven-day party and many more people showed up than they planned for. So they've run out of wine on the first couple days. They got like five more days of wine they need. And so they know that in that culture it's going to be humiliation that you don't have things to provide for the guests. And that is where Jesus, who's just an attender, not even a famous speaker, just an attender, and his mom say we got to help. Oh, it's just a catering problem. Yeah, but God cares about catering problems. In that culture, it was humiliation. And God does, Jesus does this miracle that only God could do with lots of people that you could still talk to at the time of the writing who were there. Details that are detailed. Facts you can fact check. Validated by other sources. I was at a wedding recently. Um, down in uh, Naples, it was kind of a destination wedding. And while we were there, I was sitting at a table, and the family was kind of religiously at different places. One family was Jewish. The other family came from a Christian tradition. Both their kids had become followers of Jesus. The Jewish family was kind of okay with that, but also like, well, we kind of wish they'd stayed with Judaism. So I had uh, written a, a, a wedding that incorporated that Christianity really is Judaism. It's just Judaism fulfilled. We have a Jewish rabbi who studies the Jewish Torah, who celebrates all the Jewish feasts. And so I really incorporated marriage from the Jewish perspective to bring some camaraderie uh, to, uh, to these two families. We're sitting at the rehearsal dinner, and this guy, uh, kind of culturally Jewish, but not only really religiously Jewish, he says, you know, the thing about these kids today, they just don't understand that even though the Bible, of course, isn't true, it's just got good stuff, good traditions, good rituals that help us come together as a community. And obviously, as you heard today, I don't take that position. But I thought, here's somebody really trying to give me an olive branch as if saying, we know that intelligent people know the Bible's not accurate. Really? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
But I actually respected the fact that he was trying to create some camaraderie between us to try and kind of, you know, bring people together. But I want you to, to think about that. The Bible claims some audacious things. Let it stand and fall on its audacious claims. I was talking to the Christian couple that day, and when the wedding got over, I came by their house just to say hi and thank them so much for the opportunity. And, and I saw the two of them, and, and they said they, uh, they, they fist bumped. I'm like, what are you fist bumping for? This is our last child to get married. We did it! I got a chance to marry the other two uh, kids as well. So we just had a celebration. And how they saw how even though they and their in-laws were at a different place religiously, the God they serve of Christianity loves people who believe different things, cares for people who believe different things. And yes, let's reason together why we've come to our conclusions. But they were finding, even in finamily dynamics, the grace and truth and patience of God brings people together. So John tells us he is God, and these signs point to that. Let's look at the second word. So we already found the word God. Let's see if you can find the second word John uses to describe who Jesus is. Let's go ahead and bring the word search up here. So, see if you can find the second word. We began with God. Jesus is God. But now he says Jesus is a giver of life. Spiritual life? Yes. Emotional life? Hope? Care? Yes. But also physical life. Jesus says, I am the source of all three. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record a significant event done near a crowd, but then done privately. But right outside the door is a crowd when a famous man in the town named Jairus, or Jairus, to me how you say it, his daughter has died. And the tensions are high. Why would God let her daughter die? We've all felt that. In some way, why did God let that happen? And it's into this circumstance we get to see what it likes for Jesus to show himself. To not only do the things only God can do, but to be the very source of life. Let's watch. Where were you? I was finding this mess. She is dead and you were gone. Why would you just leave us? Trust me. Please trust me and trust him. What? For what? Please. 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 I know. I know. Thank <laughs> you. 
room, please listen to me carefully. Simon, James, John, Jairus, Michal, and Nili. None of you are to say a word about this to anyone under any circumstances. Do I make myself clear? No one. So early in his ministry, he doesn't want the miracles to get out because he doesn't want to be a miracle vending machine like the Pez dispenser. He wants people to hear his teaching. His miracles validate his message. There are many people he doesn't, doesn't heal. But he wants to say that one day I'm going to come and fix this broken world because you were never made for a world with death and disease and pain. So he gives examples of his supernatural power to overcome death with life which will set up his ultimate defeating of death for himself. But he says, I'm going to one day come and fix this world. There will be no more death and no more sorrow and no more pain. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the event you just saw. John knows that that event's been covered. He builds his entire book on an outline of another event of a miraculous death-to-life meeting that happens in front of hundreds of people in a very wealthy, very well-known man in the community named Lazarus. Here's what the outline looks like. He outlines his book this way. He starts off, Jesus gives sign, 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 sign about showing his God, and they debate it. Is, that, is this really God? Then in chapter 11 is this major event similar to what you just felt and experienced, but this guy's been dead four days, named Lazarus, and in front of a gigantic crowd. Now it's public. He wants everyone to now know he is God. He raises Lazarus in front of a crowd and says, Lazarus, come forth. And now, again, John records hundreds of people, thousands of people still living in this day were there and saw that. You can go talk to them. What I'm writing down, you can go confirm. Check this out. He raised a man from the dead. And then he'll start speaking in the rest of John. He'll give some words and some comments about life and God and kingdom and heaven. And then he will show that what he did to Lazarus, he can do to himself. He raises himself from the dead as he predicted. And then he restores Peter for breaking his promises. That's how the book of John is outlined. Here's a quick summary of it. Look at how often it talks about life. Life. Jesus says, you know, i tell you what I'm all about. I haven't come for rules and regulations and religion. I've come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep, and that's what I'm here for. The miracle's in one part, but the ultimate thing is going to be me giving my life for you. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, you will live because I will raise you up in the next life. And yet even with that, Jesus empathizes and grieves with us. I did a whole message this morning at our first service on how to grieve. If you're going through a time of grief, I pick up that message online this afternoon. How do we grieve? We have a God who knows what it's like to live in a world where you lose people and people hurt. And he walks with you through that. So what does it mean for God to be, just to be God and to be your life? I met a guy recently. His name's Eddie Richards. He was the CEO of, of Air Gas Supply. 
So you have the company, if you haven't been there before, they, they sell liquid nitrogen, which I use for science experiments. They also do gas, and they also do air supply for tanks and things. And so he was the CEO of the whole national company. And I was chatting with him one day, and, and I said, uh, he found out I was a pastor. He said, well, I've had experience with God that was pretty dramatic. I said, really? Well, tell me about yourself. He goes, well, I'm the CEO of this company, or I was. I just retired. I also uh, am an investor in a concrete company. He said, but many, many years ago, probably 30, he said, I was not a believer in God or Jesus or any of this stuff. I said, oh, what happened? He said, well, I met this annoying Christian. You ever met those annoying Christians who kept talking about God and talking about Jesus and just wouldn't let it go? And I'm like, just leave me alone. I don't force my beliefs on you. And this guy said the strangest thing to me. He said, Eddie, I don't know why. I've never had this happen before or rarely. God told me that he really has something for you. He wants you to come home. And, and then something I would have thought was crazy. He says, and he says, you got a year. You got a year. And if you don't kind of come to me, you're going to be in trouble. So please come home. And he's like, whatever. These Christians making ridiculous predictions and all that kind of knocked it off. Well, his life got really tough for the next year. Some financial things happened. Some relationship things happened. His world kind of fell apart. He kind of lost track of time and certainly got rid of the annoying Christians in his life. But things got so bad that he found himself, as he's telling the story to me, on the edge of his apartment building about to throw himself off. In that moment, as everything felt like there was no real reason for living, he heard this voice, impression, whatever you want to say, a, a, a thought maybe is a better way to say it, that said, turn around. And as he was there on this ledge, he turned around and he could see through the glass. It was actually, the, it was actually not on the top of the building, it was actually on his balcony. Because he looked through the, the glass of his, his uh, outside condo and he could see the calendar on his refrigerator. And it was one year from that conversation he'd had. And it suddenly struck him that that crazy Christian had said something that God wants you to come home because a year from now it's going to get really, really bad if you don't. Not that God caused it, but he, for him he felt like this was crazy. Maybe God's warning me. I don't know. He comes back in and as he comes into the room he just begins to cry that God would care enough about him to try and save him from this moment, to give him life in this moment. He kicked on some religious television, which he typically hated and thought was crazy, and all the blue hair and everything else that goes on there, and send me a million dollars. And just as he clicked it on, the, the pastor on the channel said, I feel like someone right now has given up hope, and they, they're, they're down on their knees. He was literally on his knees. I'd never prayed on his knees before. And is really crying out to God, and, and God wants you to know he welcomes you home. Same thing. He has this incredible moment with God. Now, as he's telling the story, I've got several of my friends who are listening to this, many of which aren't religious, and I'm thinking, please stop talking. You're making us all sound crazy. All my friends who are not Christians are like, what's going on? He said, so then I said, well, God, I felt like God was saying, you got to go to church. And so I, I'm kind of having this moment with God. And I said, well, I would go to that church right across the street, but I don't know anybody there. Nobody's going to know my name. Didn't think much about it. That night he was a runner. He went out for a run. On his way back, there's a guy out barbecuing some chicken. And he says, hey, the guy with the chicken. And, and he got so desperate in his circumstances, he, he couldn't even afford food at the time, 30 years ago. So he walks over, he smells that chicken. He's like so hungry for that chicken. He's like, hey, I've seen you running before. And Eddie says, yeah, I run occasionally. He goes, hey, you do anything later today? He's like, I don't want to go running again with this guy. He's like, no, no, I'm kind of busy. He's like, well, we're, we're having a cookout here, and it's, uh, it's food for everybody. He's like, no, thanks, I... I don't have anything to bring. He said, well, well, sounds like you need it more than any of us. Why don't you join us? 
Well, some chicken sounds pretty good. So he heads down and they're, they're eating the chicken. He starts meeting all these people. And as they're meeting them, he says, by the way, kind of who is this group that's eating together? He goes, oh, we all go to that church right over there across the way. And now he's like, oh, my goodness. So as he's leaving, <laughs> he's on his way out. And this guy who cooked the chicken says, hey, by the way, yeah, what's your name? Eddie. He says, and like it was scripted, he looked at me and said, hi, Eddie. I'll see you tomorrow at church. And he said that began a journey for him. And he built his success back up to being the CEO of this big company I mentioned and owning the concrete company. But he said it all began by realizing that the God of the universe somehow cared enough about him to draw near to him. Incredible story. A God who not only is God but also is a giver of life. There's a third word. And this third word is so powerful in the way the book ends. See if you can catch it. We'll look back at our screen again. John has so far presented Jesus three ways, right? He is God, does only things God can do. He's a giver of life and life more abundant. And thirdly, he's one who can restore. He restores chaos with peace, loneliness with hope, death with life. But also when you feel like you've broken your promises to yourself, let alone God, he can restore you with forgiveness. You're never out of his reach. See, Peter's been following Jesus for three years, and he's made lots of promises. I will fight to the death. And then Jesus gets pulled off. I'll see you later. I will stand up for you in front of anybody, except a little girl who says, do you know Jesus? No, I've never heard of the guy. So he has literally made big promises and big hopes, and they've all fallen apart. Jesus has died. He even got to see him raised from the dead, but he's like, you know, I failed, I'm out, Jesus can't use me. And the very last chapter of John is about Jesus restoring Peter. But really it's about Jesus restoring anyone like us. It says that after these things, his resurrection, Peter's denial, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. See, Simon says, hey, he wanted me to be part of his church thing, I'm going back to fishing. I'm a... I failed. I'm not up. I can't be used. I blew it. I'm going fishing. And when they'd eaten breakfast that day on the shoreline, Jesus comes to Simon Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? He said, you know I love you, Lord. I'm a failure. No, no, no. I can restore you and forgive you. Go feed my lambs. I got a plan for you. No, no, no. Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know I do. I go feed my sheep. I can't. Everything I've done. Peter, do you love me? Yes, yes. And it's almost like Peter had denied him three times. He restores him three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And God would say to you that whatever you've done, however you failed yourself or God, you're never out of his reach. He doesn't say, will you obey me? The obedience is pretty good. And we eventually get to that. He doesn't say, do you do religious activity? Plenty of people do that and are self-righteous and arrogant and kind of annoying. The question is, do you love him? The main message of the entire Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. As a pastor, I get a chance to see people in some of their darkest moments 
or secrets had blown up and things they hoped would happen didn't happen or things that they didn't want to happen did happen. And I have just seen over and over and over again at our church stories I can't tell publicly. Marriages restored by this Jesus. Depression overcome by hope because of Jesus. Habits broken that have been in place for decades, broken, restored because of Jesus. And that's what I want for you. To believe and receive a higher love. Because that's John's main point. That there is a higher love than what you see in this world. Higher than friendship love. Higher than family love. Higher than even the erotic love in marriage. There is a higher love, agape love that comes from God. And John's main message is as many as received him, he's given the right to become a child of God. His main thrust is that the greatest love you've ever seen, ever wished for, ever hoped for, the greatest love is what Jesus did. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And these things I've written to you, here's what this whole book's been all about, that you might believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus. And by doing so, you don't wish you're going to get to heaven, you don't hope you're going to get to heaven, you can know you have eternal life. I want you to believe and receive a higher love that comes from heaven. And that higher love came to dwell among us. As I invite the band to come out, I'm going to tell you one more story. I have a buddy of mine who owns a video production company in Chicago. And he said one of the most powerful things he ever saw was a, was a higher love displayed on the streets of Chicago. I'm like, well, that's hard to believe. I lived in Chicago for four years. He said every day on his way to work, he would go by this area of town that was like the red light district, just prostitutes, not officially prostitutes, but prostitutes. And they'd see men petitioning them, and you'd see these young women who kind of play in the game, and then they'd kind of learn to protect their own hearts, and they guarded the real version of themselves because they're just so, so used to this use-me kind of love and their profession. He says, but one day as he's walking by, he stops because he sees a group of men and women come up to the prostitutes. Kind of caught his attention. He watched and he saw this man and this woman walk up to this woman on the street and they pulled out a white rose. And they said, it's Valentine's Day. We're followers of Jesus and we believe in a God who came to earth to forgive us for everything we've done, loves us for who we are. And we want to give this to you. Because we want you to know that God thinks you're beautiful. And God loves you for who you are, not for what you do. God loves you with a different kind of love that you're used to. And these women who've been hardened to hide the real version of themselves deep, deep down because of the just psychological protection they needed, he just saw this first prostitute begin to cry with this love, this unconditional love extended on behalf of Jesus. And then they went to the next one and the next one and just all these walls were breaking down. As these women were experiencing, not the typical kind of selfish love that you see on this planet, but a higher love, that the God of the universe would love me, forgive me, want to be in relationship with me. And that's what I want for you. To experience a God who can restore you no matter what you've done or where you've been, who thinks you are beautiful and you are incredible and he wants to brag on you as his son and daughter, not because of what you've done or what you own or how big your salary is or your accounts are, because he is your father. He wants you to accept his invitation to be adopted, to 
for the higher love of his son. And Jesus ends the book by saying, and this world is broken. I didn't raise everybody from the dead who died while I was there, but I'm coming back. And in the second sequel, when I'm back, I'm going to fix it all. No more death, no more dying. Love will restore anything and everything once and for all. Well, that's what we want for you, to have more than just the I do, than you do kind of love. That's what religion's about too. I do and maybe God will do. God says even when you don't do, I did. Because I want you to know the higher love of sacrificial love of the universe. Let me give you a chance to pray and I want to tell you three things. We're going to pray together. Just say something to God. Just the, the words of that song, God, bring me a higher love. I want your love. I want your forgiveness. I want your restoration. And I invite you, Jesus, into my life. In Jesus' name, amen.